Welcome to Clinical Conversations. I'm your host, Joe Elia. Dr. Eric Rubin, a specialist in infectious diseases, took over the reins of the New England Journal of Medicine as its editor-in-chief about a year ago. He had just enough time to settle in before, you know, the biggest pandemic in a century arrived. He's kindly agreed to take part in what's planned as a conversational survey of the editors of the principal medical journals about their takes on COVID-19. These chats won't focus so much on the clinical science of the pandemic as much as its broader effects. In addition to editing the journal, Dr. Rubin is an associate physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital and a professor in the Department of Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Welcome to Clinical Conversations, Dr. Rubin. Thanks, Joe. These have been strange times for medical journals, haven't they? They Uh, sure have. I, I don't have much of a basis for comparison, but as far as I can tell, this is pretty unusual. Yeah, I mean, how is the journal doing? You're you're all working um, in isolation. You're not up on the top of the Countway Library at uh, on Shattuck Street these days, are you? Yeah, that's right. Uh, we're all shut down. Uh, it, although I, I must say, it's worked out pretty well to have people working from home. Yeah. I suspect that, like a lot of businesses, we're going to find that we don't have all that many people in the office when we finally do get back. I remember uh, from years ago, a kind of bustling newsroom feeling uh, at the journal offices, and uh, you would have these conversations in the corridor, like, oh, you know, I, the, this thing just came in, you should take a look at it, but you, you really can't do that over Zoom so, so readily, can you? Yeah, I, I think that's right. It, it's not as if we haven't lost something. I yeah. think it's so much easier for people to walk in and not be out of people of each other's offices with questions or ideas or here's does something cool. Um, so we miss that. And I, I'm hoping that we recapture that. But on the other hand, there's a lot of just get the work done stuff that um, people can do very efficiently at home. Fact, yeah. More efficiently. Yeah. When I was there, people would say, well, you know, what's, how often does the journal come out? And I would say every damned week. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's relentless. Yeah, it's, kind of, it's kind of relentless. Yes. Um, so have you been inundated with research reports? We have. Um, we, now I will say it's gotten a lot better, but at its peak, we were getting more than 200 manuscripts a day, seven days a week uh, for, for, for a while, just on COVID-19 on top of really a pretty normal volume otherwise. Yeah. My gosh. So electronics have, have helped you distribute that workload, I, I, I guess, but that's, that's a lot of reviewers to find. It is. We, we, we have to filter before we send out for review pretty, pretty severely. Um, and, and finding reviewers is also problematic because the reviewers that we want to use are also quite busy. Yeah. Um, they're, they're the people taking care of the patients with COVID or setting the policy. So people I think the reviewers have been very generous, but um, it, it did mean that we took a rather severe cut uh, when things came in, thinking, you know, we're just, this just is not likely to make it, and the authors are better off going somewhere else where they can get a, a real serious look. Yeah. You know, journals have often been called universities without walls, um, but now a lot of information, especially biomedical information, is being swapped around on social media but they are kind of universities without constraints. Um, 
what's your feeling about this this kind of swapping of of information that's going on? You know, I have mixed feelings. On one hand, I like the fact that information is being democratized and anyone can see it and comment on it. And that's certainly true of COVID-19, where we and, and many of our of our fellow journals uh, are making everything available immediately for for free access uh, right away immediately so that everyone can read the same things that the experts are reading. When I look at social media, though, there's a real mix. There is, there's really learned commentary and there's uh, there are, there's mis- real misinformation, and uh, it can be hard, I think, for people to sort out what's real from what's not. Can journals then offer a kind of um, healthy skepticism in peer review? Uh, is, is that what they can bring to the table? I think for sure. Uh, there's no question that we make a lot of changes in every manuscript that uh, comes to us. We work together with the authors, but the final product, generally looks a lot different from what was submitted and, and different from the preprint that's, uh, that's been posted. And some of those changes, a lot of them are, cos- are cosmetic. A lot of them are messaging questions, making, the, making them more understandable or more accessible or being very clear about what the investigators did. But a lot of them are substantial. For example, it's not unusual to change the conclusions of a manuscript and, and sometimes change them to the opposite of what the authors had said originally. And that's a pretty big change. And it's, it is, so I think we're still playing a role in, in, in communications that it's very important. And we do that certainly with the very big help of our peer reviewers. So those changes, Eric, are made with the, of course, with the consent of the authors. I mean, they're not just made and and uh, and published. I just want our listeners to understand that. Absolutely, um, I, this is a collaboration with our authors. Yeah. When when we accept a paper, we're a little bit different from many scientific journals. We we generally decide after peer review immediately we're going to take this or we're not. Um, it's very unusual for us to send it back and say, you know, if you did some more experiments, we'd, uh, we'd, we'd reconsider. Generally, we write a letter that says, we'd like to publish this, uh, but as long as we can work with you to make the changes that we think are necessary. Uh-huh. And those are, can be fairly extensive. This pandemic is an event that's affecting culture in, in some ways in the same way that the AIDS epidemic did um and uh, by which i mean um you know human interactions and and politics uh as as much as as creating an an urge to solve the problem biomedically but would you agree that the pandemic has become unusually politicized it is it's very strange um but absolutely um i I think the parallel that you point to with HIV is a good one. Uh, and back when HIV was at, in its heyday uh, and, and treatments were not so good, it's not that, not that HIV has gone away. I'm not, don't mean to suggest that, right. but back when there weren't many therapies uh, and there was a very strong advocacy movement, um, it was a very frustrating time. And that led, and, and people may not recall this, but that led to a lot of sort of 
crackpot theories that got propagated very widely in the, com in, in the community and, and were ascribed to by a lot of people. And, and that really undermined, I think, their confidence in the system. Now, in the case of HIV, what brought confidence back was having effective therapies. It really was a technical fix. It wasn't a political fix. Mm -hmm. Now we're, we're in, a, in an even more difficult situation, I think, because our most effective means for controlling the virus are simple. They're social engineering in a way. They're wearing masks and social distancing and all the standard sort of stuff. Um, and yet we're not really able to uh, implement them in the U.S. at least uh, uh, as widely as we should because of this, politi this politicization of the, uh, of, of the questions. Um, you know, Rudolf Virchow back two centuries ago, that said that uh, medicine is a social science. Um, and, and, and these simple, you know, measures that, that you mentioned are, are, are part of the social science probably that, that needs to be done. Well, you know, and I think that goes back again, it, back to HIV. I think it's a really good point. Um, in HIV, all we had originally were control measures and those control measures meant people had to change their behavior in ways that they didn't want to want to change. And it was very difficult. It, the uptake of that was difficult, it, it very parallel to today. And what made the difference was actually not a social intervention, but a technological fix. And I think once again, we've come to rely on technology that we're, we're incredibly reliant right now on the idea that a vaccine will be successful. You know, um, speaking of HIV, um, w when I was when I was at the journal a long time ago, uh, it, it's in the Shattuck Street offices. We had a uh, telephone call from Michael Gottlieb in Los Angeles in 1981, and uh, he, he I, I happened to be the senior person uh, in the office at the time. I think Bud Relman was was off on one of his trips, and um, uh, he said, "Gee, I've got four cases." Uh, how soon uh, of something, how soon can you publish an article? And I said, well, you know, three to five months is, is what we've got. So I said, what is it? And he said, well, you know, it's this kind of infections thing that's uh, predominantly among uh, gay men. And I said, do you think it's a public health problem? And he said, I do. And I said, go to MMWR and submit it there. And, and, and he did. And the next day, Bud Relman was back the editor of the journal in those days. And uh, he called Gottlieb and said, yeah, uh, go to MMWR and we'll publish the whole thing uh, later. And we did in, I think, December, uh, like something like six or eight months later, we, we, we published his article. So, I mean, um, Randy Schultz in his book and the band played on says, oh, you know, the, the, Gottlieb went to the journal and the journal poo-pooed it, but it's not it's not true um it it, makes it, 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 it it and the journal had the first report i have to say in a medical journal of hiv back uh back then um technology is better now um so that we can publish things much more rapidly and we can get them out online instead of in print yeah. uh, like we had to do back then uh but that it still requires people yeah. um and that is still the resource that's most difficult for us. Um, we, we put a lot of hours into every, every article and we're still putting in the same hours. They're just compressed into a weekend. Yeah. Early in the pandemic, 
the journal published a letter about um, uh, asymptomatic or, or pre, yes, pre-symptomatic transmission for which it was, it, it got, got some criticism. Uh, it turns out that it was, that it was correct. The, the letter was correct. Um, but that you're on the firing line a lot, aren't you? As, as, uh, as, as the editor, uh, you, you can be accused of saying, well, you know, they, the, the journal is trying to, uh, to be first. Um, and it's not always, <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. I, I, I think that's right. And, and I think we should be criticized when we, when we make mistakes and, and we should act to try to rectify those. Um, in, in that case, uh, we, we happen to be right. Um, and, and, and we were vindicated by subsequent, um, subsequent studies. But, um, you know, that was, a, that was a case of politics as much as anything. That was a message that people didn't want to hear and they were very resistant to at the time. You know, it's no, no surprise that the biggest subsequent issues uh, in general, in, in medical journals have been about uh, hydroxychloroquine, which has a very faithful following. Um, and uh, when anything gets published, we have a lot of people who object if it, and, and we would have people objecting on either side if we said that it, if the article suggested it worked or it didn't. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and we're also in the position, put in the position, we get, we get a lot of people writing saying, why didn't you do this? We didn't actually do the study. Um, so it's a little hard for us to, uh, but, but, but they'll criticize our, our characterization of the study as positive or negative. And um, I think we're doing the best we can. And it's very fair to, to uh, it's very fair to second guess us. Um, that, that, that's, part of the interchange, but, um, it, it can get a little personal. (laughs) So when you think about your role, Dr. Rubin, what do you you see yourself as a, uh, a teacher or a, uh, a referee, a a ringmaster? Who do you, when you, when you think about your audience, who is it? Well, that, that's a really good question. Um, we like to think of our audience as clinicians, as people who are taking care of patients. Um, the truth is that we publish a range of things, some of which are aimed at practicing clinicians and are very practical. Um, they can be the videos in clinical medicine which show you how to intubate a patient or, um, or, or how to do any given procedure, um, or um, the CPCs, the, the uh, the, the various clinical series we have where discussants pre- develop a, um, uh, a differential diagnosis and, and come up with management plans for patients. Um, the research articles we try to characterize, at least in summary, in ways that anyone can, that any clinician could, uh, could understand the message. Now, the truth is we do have, and, and I, we, are, we have a, more and more of what I guess I'd call experimental medicine, which is uh, something that's not yet ready for prime time. Um, it can be phase one studies. It can be first in man studies occasionally of new drugs or new techniques. Uh, and I still think that's important because a clinician can see what's coming next. What do we have to look forward to? 
Um, it may or may not be the, a, a breakthrough, but it could be, and we're, we'd like to get those out to our, our audience. Um, admittedly, some of what we publish is very technical um, yeah. and is, is aimed at a subspecialist or, or occasionally really a researcher uh, community, but we're trying to serve everybody uh, to some extent. Um, our goal is to make a difference in how people are treated. And, and I think we're, we, we try to think of that, the audience that matters for, doing, for making that sort of impact. If, if you considered yourself a ringmaster, um, uh, how do you get the uh, lions and tigers to behave? <laughs> well, so I guess that, that requires a little description of the process we go through to make, our, to make decisions on manuscripts. Uh-huh. Um, essentially, all the editors sit in a room, uh, at least until, uh, until we shut down the office. <laughs> um, everyone shows up. There are 30 people in a room, and every manuscript that's gone through peer review and has some chance of being uh, uh, accepted gets presented. Actually, it's very old-fashioned. Um, the, the editor who's handling it Xeroxes all the figures, hands them around, and then presents the paper as if it's a journal club. Um, and then there's a very interesting discussion uh, where the experts in the room or the people who have opinions in the room who have, have uh, uh, educated opinions in the room uh, will bring up any aspect of it. Was the design correct? Are the statistics correct? We have several status PhD professors of statistics sitting in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, was it ethical? Was there equipoise? Could you do this study? Almost any aspect of it gets discussed. And at the end, we make a decision. It is kind of a strange position in, to be in, to be the final decision maker, because so many people in that room know more than I do. Um, but it, it comes to a balancing act of what, what, do, what do we think people really need to know um, and, 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 and what's going to move the needle. And I think that gets discussed all the time. In fact, one of the key questions that comes up repeatedly is, if we publish this, is it going to help or hurt patients? Um, are people going to take this incorrectly and potentially do harm? Or is this really going to make a difference? And if it's really going to make a difference, we'll definitely publish it. Um, so it's, it's a fascinating process. I mean, it's, it's, it's the world's best journal club. <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much, Dr. Rubin, for speaking with me today. Thanks, Joe. That was our 273rd episode. We come to you from the NEJM Group. Our executive producer is Kristen Kelly, and I'm Joe Elia. Thanks for listening.